You know, I was thinking on the way in about pastors and the different styles of authority and leadership. I was thinking about how some of them, I don't know what you would call it. I call it a head thumper, but somebody that just lets you know where you sit and you need to act better and you need to straighten up and you need to do what's right. And then you have pastors that are naturally loving people. They wouldn't yell if the house is on fire. Like they're very calm and collected. And this morning, as I go through our message on prioritizing God in our life, I don't want you to think that when I start talking about things and situations and statistics, that I'm doing it in a way that would be browbeating someone, because it's not. It's truly coming from the heart and things I've done myself and still struggle with. So don't think that it's coming from a place of, I know what everybody's doing and we should be doing better and we should be doing this. It's coming from a place of where I've been going through Scripture and these three different places that we're going to be talking about today and what God says about prioritizing him above everything and everyone else. And it's hard to do, especially nowadays in today's society, with a thousand and one distractions for everyone. Oh, by the way, there's no children's church. <laughs> forgot to say that. There's no children's church today. Um, but Amanda put some uh, coloring sheets and crayons in the foyer at the welcome table and also at the children's check-in desk. So if they would like that, uh, that's out there for them. And also, we're not going to be having small groups today, as I said earlier. And I hope that everyone here had a wonderful Christmas holiday season. I know we did. And uh, it's uh, encouraging to see everyone in here this morning. So tomorrow when we wake up, it'll be 2024. And I feel like every year brings a whole new set of problems. It does. But it's also a whole new set of blessings. I remember when I was a kid, I would stay up with my mom until 12 o'clock at night. And from the time I can remember until I was a teenager, because my brother and my dad, they, they couldn't stay up. So we would stay up till 12 o'clock, watch the ball drop in Times Square, watch everybody celebrate. Even though we're an hour behind, we didn't actually stay up till 12, but we stayed up and celebrated it with New York, even though we're here. Um, and then we would go to bed. And 20 or 30 years later, um, I'm usually out by 10 o'clock at night. I don't, I don't celebrate anymore. And Amanda, she goes to bed earlier than I do, like 8 or 9 o'clock early. So we're, we're not, we're, we're going to celebrate bringing in the new year with a good night's sleep. That's, that's what happened as you get older, I think. So that, that's, that's me. That's where we're going to be at. Um, but with the new year comes New Year's resolutions. But I'm not going to give you statistics and uh, what resolutions should look like. I know I've went over that in the past, and I've gave you guys resolutions, but what Christian resolutions should look like. I'm not going to go through that today. I'm going to challenge you this morning, and I'm going to like to challenge you to reevaluate your priorities. Um, I'd like for you to be honest with yourself and to be honest about where God is placed on your list of priorities. That's why I've titled this morning's message, The Importance of Priority. So I'm going to give you guys a story. Uh, it says, it was a 99-degree September day in San Antonio when a 10-month-old baby girl was accidentally locked inside a parked car by her aunt. Frantically, the mother and aunt ran around the car in near hysteria. 
while a neighbor attempted to unlock the car with a clothes hanger. Soon the infant was turning purple and had foam on her mouth. It had become a life or death situation. When Fred Arilla, a record driver, arrived on the scene, he grabbed a hammer and smashed the window of the car to set her free. Was he heralded a hero? Well, this is what Fred Arilla had to say about the event. He said, the lady was mad at me because I broke the window. I just thought, what's more important, the baby or the window? Most questions when we're talking about priorities isn't between questions of what's important and what's trivial. Most questions of priority is over what's important in our lives and what's most important in our lives. You agree? So this morning, we're going to be looking at the importance of, of our priorities and what you do, where you go, who you associate with. Those are all things that need to be prioritized in our lives. Even our daily schedules need prioritized. Without it, there would be no order, there would be dysfunction, and there would be chaos in most situations. For example, what's our two biggest priorities in a 24-hour cycle? Eating and sleeping, right? Things we have to do. We, don't, we can't go without it, so guess what? We put that at the top of our priority list. We have to. We prioritize them because we couldn't function without them. You keep me up for three days straight, and I've done it before, didn't want to. I'm a different person. I'm not the same guy. You don't feed my kids for two days or for, for a couple of meals two days. I can't imagine that. A couple of meals. It's like you guys know the Snickers commercial where it's this cranky crank machine. They give them a here, take a Snickers, and they turn to like who they actually are. That's what happens with my family. Amanda would never be that way, though, right? <laughs> Got to make sure she's happy. Um, but instead of looking at the uh, things everyone on earth prioritizes, let's look at what Christians need to prioritize. And instead of looking at physical priorities, let's look at spiritual priorities. First, we're going to look at two examples where God was placed first on their priority, or last. Two examples where God was placed last on the priority list. And then we're going to look at the end at one example where God was placed first and foremost in the priorities of this man's life. So the first example of God being prioritized at the, in, in, the first, in his first place, or being, I'm so sorry, I'm stuttering. Let me start that over. Here we go. Take two. We're first going to start out with the prior, an example where this person's priority of God was at the bottom. There. A little bit worded a little bit better. And that example is going to come out of 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you would, turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. That's on page 291 in the Bibles on the pew rack. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. It's yours. Um, so as you're turning there, I'm going to get me a drink real quick. All right, so I want you to keep this in mind before we begin reading our passage. Um, other gods or false gods, idolatry in general, when it comes in many different forms. Other gods and idols don't always come in the form of wood or, or stone or gold and silver images or statues. It so when we're going through this passage, keep that in mind that other gods or false gods, idols don't always come in the form of how they did back in the Old Testament. Other, other forms of gods and little god, or gods with a little g, they can come in the form of people, such as our spouses, our children, boyfriends, girlfriends, friends. Um, they can be electronics. It can, there's a lot of different things that can take place of where God should be. That becomes then an idol of worship when that happens, when it be, takes the place of God in your life, when it's the first thing you think of when you wake in the morning, when it's all you think about all day long, when it's when you have a moment to yourself where your mind goes is what's most important to you. 
In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, gives us the first command of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. I want to start it out with saying that. So before we give King Solomon a hard time, let's keep that in mind. What do we think of when we hear King Solomon's name? We think of wisdom. We think of wealth. We think of he was the son of David, heir to his throne. That's what most people think of when they think of Solomon. So do you think that any of those things impress God? No. None of those things impress God. Why? Why do they not impress God? Because God is the one that gave him those things in the first place. God is the one who blessed him with those things. No, God, he wasn't impressed with King Solomon's royal splendor, wisdom, and wealth because God looks at the heart of a man. That's what he looks at. Things and materials doesn't sway him in any way, shape, or form. In King Solomon's age, in his old age, we'll see where God was on his priority list. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Sorry. Chapter 11, verse 1. We have now King Solomon loved, for, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the, Israel, to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for you shall surely turn away your hearts, or they shall surely turn away your hearts after their gods. So right off the bat, we see that King Solomon had a weakness for women, especially foreign women. Um, and notice that the daughter of Pharaoh here is named first and then a brief pause before naming the rest of the foreign women that are listed. That, that most likely is because the daughter of Pharaoh, um, she, she took priority over the rest of foreign, foreign women because uh, he had hundreds of royal wives, by the way, 700 to be exact, which we'll read here in a little bit. But there's a, there's a reason that I believe that she was listed as number one because many of these marriages were politically motivated, a lot of them. And all these royal wives, they would give King Solomon more influence and more power. And when you think of Pharaoh's daughter, you think of power, influence. So when he married her, it wasn't just for lustful reasons. I believe it was for political reasons as well, to have more power, more influence. So the more you had, the more you, areas you could control. Now, the marriage to these women may have brought good political, uh, good political move in trying to create peace between nations that normally would have had, uh, they would have been combative towards each other. There would have been division. So he's, in a way, bringing peace to the, to the area, probably. And we'll, but we'll read, as we read in verse 2, that God specifically told King Solomon to not marry these foreign women. And he also gives us the why. Why did he tell us not to marry these foreign women? Because they would turn our hearts away from him and to their foreign gods. So not only do we see the what, but we see the why. And he didn't have, God didn't have a problem with the foreign women in and of themselves. He had a problem with the false gods that they served. If these foreign women served the one and true living God, I believe he truly wouldn't have had a problem with them. But he had a problem with them because of the false gods and the idols that they served. That's, where the, that's why he didn't want them marrying into them. Because um, he knew it would turn their hearts away from them and turn to the other gods. And as I mentioned earlier, God, he's not impressed with how much influence, power, wealth, all these things you have, wisdom, 
if you don't use it the right way, if you don't honor him with it. He's the one that gives it to us in the first place. Whether you want to believe that or not, you are blessed by God with these things. You are allowed to, by God to have these things, as was King Solomon. Now, this makes me think, I was, when I was studying through this, I got to thinking about the friends we keep around us and the circle of friends that we keep. And you've probably heard the saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. How many of you have heard that saying before? A lot of people. A lot of people. You show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's, first of all, that's why Jesus Christ should be your number one friend. He should be your best friend. He should be who you go to, who you ask questions to, and everything in between. He should be number one, first and foremost. Secondly, every friend you have here on earth should be pointing you towards Jesus in some way. And when I'm talking about your friends, I'm not talking about everyone you know. I'm talking about those two or three close friends that everyone has in their life. That close circle of friends, they shouldn't be pulling you away from God. If you think of those two or three friends and they're pulling you away from God and tempting you into doing those things, you should probably distance yourself from them if it's that much of a struggle. It's hard, and that's not me being, I don't know what the word is for it, not mean or angry, but... Sometimes I believe if they know where you stand, they know that I belong to Jesus Christ and they're still constantly trying to pull me into sin, still constantly trying to get me to do the things I shouldn't do, watch things I shouldn't watch, listen to the things I shouldn't listen to, I should probably separate myself from those friends in a loving way. I can't do that. I'm not going to because you know I belong to Jesus Christ. You know what I believe in. And if you guys want to come with me, that's great. I love you. That's all I want for you. But I can't keep doing this anymore. I can't. And you, you know I love you. So until something changes, I just got to distance myself. We can go eat dinner, we can go do certain things, but when it comes to that, or if you're going to speak like that around me, I just can't be around it. And I love you, and I'm always here in case you want to talk to me. That, that's how I believe. That's what, when I'm saying distance yourself, that's what I'm saying when I say you should distance yourself from that circle of friends. They shouldn't lead your heart away from God. That's what I thought of. When I thought of the foreign women leading or turning their hearts away. Because I got to thinking about modern day, a lot of us have friends and co-workers and things like that that you really, really get along with to the point of you're relaxed, your guard's down around them, and then they start doing things they shouldn't be doing, and it kind of gets you into doing that same pattern of behavior until you get to church or around your family at home and things like that. They shouldn't be doing that in the first place, and neither should you. If they're your true close friends, they'll understand. They will. Your close friends, including yourself, should be pointing others to Christ. You should be the example of what a true disciple looks like. Now let's read through verse 3. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So God had warned King Solomon what would happen if he married these foreign women, and that's exactly what happened, exactly what God said it would. In verse 2, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to them. How many people do you know that cling to sin? They won't let it go. They won't come to church knowing they should because of what they would rather do because they cling to it. I hope it's not you. And if it is, take care of that today. Recommit your life to God. Let go of those things that are pulling you down because I promise you they are. God was no longer Solomon's number one priority. The question is, is God your number one priority? And if so, is there evidence to that claim? You say, yes, God is number one in my life. 
Is there evidence to that claim? Because what you say and what you do are two different things. Mama once told me actions speak louder than words, right? There's a lot of truth to that saying, so much truth. You can tell me all day you love me, but if I don't see it, it's kind of hard to believe. Saying one thing and doing, another, and doing one thing is to two totally different things. They should be one and the same. What you say and what you do should match each other identically. Amen? Let's continue reading verses 4 through 8. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And from what I understand, Chemosh is the equivalent of, of the God we serve. Supposedly he can do everything for everyone. Supposedly. He's supposedly the equivalent. But as you see in Scripture, it calls him the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. When I say the equivalent, supposed, he's not a real God, he's false. There's no such thing. But they'll worship him as if he were the one and true living God. Does that make sense? Sorry, youth class question. Anyways, <laughs> um, the, it says in verse 7, Then Solomon, and this is what is the most sickening thing of it all, is not only does Solomon go after these foreign women, not only does he let... His lust for them, his lust for power and wealth and all these influence over all the, the, the area around him corrupt him. Once he gets with these foreign women, they not only turn his heart to, to, away from God, but toward the other gods. And we'll see what we're about to read is he starts building statues around the mountains around Jerusalem. Verse 7, then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So he, he wasn't just tempted away from them. Now he's doing it with them. He's worshiping these gods with him. That's, what, that's when I started thinking about the friends pulling you away. Now not only are you just kind of hanging out with them and going along with them, they've turned your heart away from God. Now not only have you turned your heart away from God, you're chasing these things instead of just knowing you shouldn't be. Now you want it and forsake everything else and say, this is what I'm going to do now. This is my new identity because you couldn't distance yourself away from those people, kind of like he did it with his foreign wives. God's saying, they'll turn your heart away from me. Don't do it. And they did. And now he's chasing after other gods. With Solomon... We see what happens when you prioritize your love for others, your love for power and wealth over your love for God. In later years, he was more focused on what he wanted more than what God wanted. And that's going to be a central theme in today's message. It's people that wanted more what they wanted to do more than what they wanted God for them to do. This leads me to our second example of where God's will was not the number one priority. Just like King Solomon, whose focus was on what he wanted more than what God wanted, will find in the book of Haggai that the community of Jews living in Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile would also fall into this same way of prioritizing their plans over God's plans. So turn with me in the book of Haggai, starting in chapter 1. Turn to Haggai chapter 1, and that's on page 791 in the Bibles on the pew rack. We're going to be talking about these Babylonian exiles, the remnant of Jews that had came back to Jerusalem. 
So when we talk about priorities, we'll be talking about that community of Jews and their priorities. And before we begin reading, I'm going to give you guys a quick explanation of who Haggai is and what's going on in this period of time. So Haggai, he's, a, he's one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, he's not minor in the sense that uh, of his work or his calling. So he's not minor in that sense. His calling is just as powerful as all the other prophets, but he's a minor prophet in the sense that what's the amount of what he wrote in the Bible, his contribution to the Bible wasn't as lengthy as the major prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel. Those are, there's a lot there, but it's not to say that it's not as important because it's just as important what he contributed to scripture. And as we read, we'll see that God sent Haggai to encourage and challenge the Jews that have been exiled from Babylon. And these Jewish exiles who returned from Jerusalem had begun to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. So rebuilding the temple, that was God's will. You have all these exiles. They had been slaves and captives to King Nebuchadnezzar and then the Persians and the Medes to Darius the king. So they'd been through all these phases and they'd been enslaved in Babylon. And so now that there's a remnant that King Darius let go back to Jerusalem, I think it's 48,000 to 50,000 of them go back to Jerusalem and they start to rebuild. Well, there's opposition when they get there. They start meeting because there's these people that's lived around the area this whole time. When they come back, they see Jerusalem's being built back up and they're like, this is not good. This is not good. So they start to try to discourage them and, and oppose them as they're building up the walls, like when Nehemiah built the walls up in 52 days, or when they start to be, rebuild the temple. So they're starting to get discouraged in opposition. And they start to reprioritize what they wanted over what God wanted. And that's what we're going to read here, starting in verse 1. All right, verse 1, chapter 1, in the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. I get so tongue-tied when I say that, so if I say it wrong, it's okay, it's fine. Uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, I want you to look at two names, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel, he's the governor of Judah, and Joshua, he's the high priest, okay, out of this remnant of Jews that's back in Jerusalem. You have these two right here. And, and Haggai, he's the prophet to these two important men during this time. Now, I like what I told you guys. I listen to people and I read different books and different authors and things like that. Well, I like Tony Evans. You guys know that. And I found a quote that he talks about prophets, and I love it. And I'm going to read it for you guys. Tony Evans says this. Prophets were God's alarm clocks in a sense. And in the same way that our alarm clocks are often not appreciated when they interrupt our rest, biblical prophets were not appreciated when they sounded the divine alarm that was a spiritual wake-up when a spiritual wake-up was needed, end quote. So I got to think about alarm clocks and I thought, I don't know how many alarm clocks you guys have to set to get up in the morning. If you're like a one, one alarm clock kind of person up and at them, that speaks a lot to your personality. Me? I'm four. Every day, doesn't matter what, four alarm clocks. The first alarm clock just kind of gets me stirring, whatever. Second alarm clock makes me very angry. 
third alarm clock, I come to my senses and I kind of, and I know where I'm at. I know what's going on. And I usually just sit there and wait for the fourth one because then I know that's, it's time to get up. So if I got to get up at 4.30 or 4.30, wow, that's early. If I got to get up at 5.30, which I usually do, I set my alarms from 5 to 5.30 and they're just buzzing off until it gets to that fourth one. And then I know it's time to get up. I'm at myself. So when I first start, you know, stirring around, it's like that lethargic feeling, like you're just kind of sluggish. And, uh, but during those first few alarms, where people get a little, a little lethargic, I believe that was the Jewish community and, uh, in a spiritual sense, and when we read verse 2. So let's, uh, let's read verses. But before we read verses 2 through 4, I want to say this. The will of God was being put on the back burner, so God sent Haggai a message. He sent Haggai a message to relay back to these two guys, Robo and Joshua, and the remnant of Jews. And he was the alarm clock that would show them their misplaced priorities. Now let's read verses 2 through 4. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, the house, while this house lies in ruins? After studying, after I got done studying through the book of Haggai, I learned that in 536 BC, the foundation of the temple was laid. And, they didn't, and the opposition came in, and they didn't start rebuilding the temple again until 520 B.C. So from 536 to 520 B.C. is 16 years. So 16 years had went by from when they had laid the foundation of the temple and said, I'm done with it. I, I can't handle this opposition anymore. Let's go build our houses. Let's go do what, make our stuff look good. So they, they were done with it. And some might point to the adversaries and say, well, it was so hostile. That's why they had to stop. That's what stopped the rebuilding process. But I'll tell you what, Nehemiah was also had came there. And when he had came, the remnant there had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. And you know the wall of Jerusalem to build that was no small task whatsoever. Nehemiah and the remnant, they uh, faced opposition at every turn when they were trying to build the wall. And like I said earlier, that wall was built in 52 days, the wall of Jerusalem. Now you look at, compare it to 16 years with that same group of people. And some might point to the adversaries, but I'll point to God because he's the reason that it was built when Nehemiah, because they obeyed him. They wanted what God wanted and it was done in 52 days and they would build the wall with the sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. Like they were getting it done. And these guys, they saw the foundation of, of the temple and a little bit of opposition and I'm out. So we claim, sorry, focusing back on the temple is the place where God, and I'm going to pose a question to you guys. The temple back then, that was the place where the glory of God came to dwell. That was where God was in their midst. So for them to not finish rebuilding the temple, to let it sit there lying in ruins, what does that say about them? About where God is on their overall agenda? What does that say? It means he's pretty close to the bottom, right? We claim God is number one in our lives. We want God to be a part of our lives without letting God take over our lives. It's like they claimed to be Jewish. They claimed to serve the one true living God, but they didn't want God taking control of everything they were doing because of the opposition, because of everything that was standing in their way. Instead of leaning into God and letting God take control like Nehemiah did when they were there, they just said, I'd rather do what I want to do. And that makes me ask a question. When you wake up first thing in the morning, did your mind focus on work, your spouse, 
your kids? And for you teenagers, is it school or your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Is that the first thing you think of when you get up and you're at yourself? Or is it God? Or is it a conversation with him? Do you get up and do you pray before your feet even hit the floor? Do you read your Bible or listen to your Bible app? I do both. Some mornings I don't feel like reading, so I'll just listen to my Bible app. I do the year plan, and I love listening to it. It's great. You guys should try it. The Bible app, fantastic. When Sunday mornings roll around, do you find yourself looking for any excuse possible to miss Sunday morning? Or do you say to yourself, it's Sunday, and I'm going to church, and that's going to take priority, the number one spot. Nothing or no one will discourage me from worshiping with others, from encouraging others, or from hearing God's word proclaimed and taught. I will be an example for my family and loved ones. Where is God on your priority list? Did you know there's a time of year during the year called the summer slump? Tom Rainer, who is the founder and CEO of the church organization, or Church Answers organization, says that the typical average decline is 20% during the summer months in churches around the nation. Why is the typical decline of attendance down 20% during these months? Some people give a laundry list of reasons, but the answer is very simple. It's because for most of that 20%, God is not the number one priority. Sadly, when it's time to take a summer break from work, a lot of people think that it's time to take a break from church as well. And I'm not talking about your week or two of vacation that you take during the summertime. I'm talking about the entire summer block, two to three months. And that's what God, or uh, that's when we get to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. And I understand things come up. That's when I, before I started this message, I was saying, I understand. I get it. I've been there, done it, and I understand that things come up. So I'm not bashing or hitting on anyone, but there are people that will take two to three months off and then come back once the school year starts back up because coming to church is part of their routine. Yes, it's great to have God as part of your routine. That's awesome. But he needs to be in your routine every single day. It shouldn't be seasonal or optional. He should be in there every single day. And I promise you, you'll start seeing the fruits of that if you do. The longer you're apart from God, the more scattered-brained you're going to be. The more worried you're going to be, the more anxious you're going to be. Put God in your routine. Now in verse 2, the Lord says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Like I said earlier, what the people say and what they know to be true are two different things. They know the temple needs to be rebuilt. They know what God wants, but instead of, but they make excuses saying the time has not yet come. So they know what needs to be done, but they're going to say that, it, that the time has not yet come. That's because they placed their agenda over God's agenda. That's why God sent Haggai, the prophet, to tell them to reprioritize. Stop doing what you want to do and start doing what God wants you to do. That should be on your bulletin if you want to fill that in. That, that's something that came to my mind as I was reading through this. Is, and it was to me, to me. I felt like God was telling this to me, for me. Stop doing what you want to do, Jared, and start doing what I want you to do. Stop being scared to talk to that person about me and do it because that's what I want you to do. That's what I've commissioned you to do. I've commissioned you to live a life set apart from everybody in the world, so do it. And I'm not talking about a life set apart in a pastor role. I'm talking a life set apart as a Christian. You can have secular jobs and spread the joy of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. You can set a life apart that way. We are holy. We're supposed to be holy for he is holy. 
well, I'm just a sinner. I can't help it. I was born that way. That's not how God has commissioned us to live. We're supposed to spread the gospel message and to live a life according to his will. Now, if Haggai were able to preach a sermon from the New Testament, I truly believe he would have preached it from this, from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. For those of us who are Christians, as I said earlier, seeking God, prioritizing God, it shouldn't be seasonal or optional. It should be a part of our daily lives. And if you look down at verse 12, you'll see in our passage of Haggai that fortunately the remnant of Jews uh, there, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. So let's read verses 12 through 14. It says, Then Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, of the, of the Lord their, of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So this is a very encouraging passage, verses 12 through 15. Because we see where God's people obeyed him by putting God's will ahead of their own. And what is so encouraging is what happened after they reprioritized their lives. What does it say? It said that God stirred up their spirit. When they all came back to the temple to rebuild, God stirred up their spirit. And I'm sure they had a new sense of passion and excitement for working for God. And And more than likely, they were excited to be together. To be together and work for the cause, for the Lord's cause. It makes me think of this verse in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the day and all the more the day you see drawing near. More the, sorry. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in everyone's life, there's going to be temptations. And there's going to be challenges in prioritizing what matters most. Remember earlier in the message when I said most questions of priority are not between something that's important or something trivial, but something that is important and most important. The life of Daniel shows us this. And this will be the last place we go to. So if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 6. This will be our last place. And in Daniel chapter 6, it'll be on page 743 in your Bibles on the pew rack. All right. Now, this is going to be one of the more familiar stories in the Bible. It's going to be Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm going to try to give you guys a little more insight than we do at Children's Church on Daniel in the lion's den. But, hey, the stuff they get is just as good. I promise you. So the question becomes, why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Because of his priorities. 
because there was nothing that would cause Daniel to compromise his priority of putting God first. Not what people thought or what they could do to him. Let's begin reading in chapter 6. And I did this. I came in here last week, and I read through chapter 6. It took me five minutes and and 32 seconds. So get ready. Buckle up. We're going to read through chapter 6. And I'm not going to stop and, and sit here and do it, but I think we'll be blessed by this. We're going to read through the entire chapter. It's going to be about five minutes. Please Take a drink of water, hyperventilate yourself for a second, wake up, slap yourself, whatever you got to do to get through this. But I think we'll be blessed by it because I'm going to read through chapter 6. I'll have some words, and then we'll have our invitation, all right? So we're almost there. It's okay. So let's start reading in chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. In short, there's 120 of these government officials. Then there's three high officials that's over these 120. Out of these three high officials that are over the 120, you have one that is in exile, one that was a slave, one that was named Daniel. So all the others are actually from Persia. These are the people that are from the, the land, and Daniel was in exile, but yet he was placed as one of the three high officials over all the rest. And as we'll read, He's, he's about to get even more power. It says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was over him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The king planned to set Daniel in exile over the entire kingdom. Do you think this made the rest of the high officials very happy? Absolutely not. They hated him. And the king planned to set him over the, enti- over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find no, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. I hope they would say that about us. We can't, we can't get him fired. There's nothing we can do to get this guy fired. But he prays in the break room all the time. That's breaking one of our policies. Let's get him for that. Let's get her for that. If that is the case, so be it. Let it be. That's the only reason they should find fault with us, just as in Daniel. Let's keep reading. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. They're sucking up to him. O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So it wasn't an execution. It wasn't saying, let's go up there and we can execute them the fastest way possible. No, they're very specific. Let's throw them into a, a den of lions having one man in the back of their mind. No, and everybody else is going to go by this. So that way he gets a very torturing death by getting thrown into a den of lions. So for starting, beginning, or continuing in verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. They were putting the pressure on him for 30 days. No one, no prayer petition for God or man can be except for you, O king. Sign it, sign it, sign it. So he signed it. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to, uh, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper room chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
So he didn't go hide in his closet. He didn't wait at nighttime and get in a dark place by the window. He went right there in his upper chamber, open to all Jerusalem. He didn't hide, and he got on his knees, and he thanked God. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. At this point, he doesn't know it's Daniel yet. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles. They didn't say Daniel, who's one of those three high officials. They want to put him in his place. Daniel, who's one of those exiles. One of the people that you thought would be good for this spot. One of these exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. The king loved Daniel. Daniel was an awesome, awesome worker for him. He was, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a good steward of what the king had given him. He did better than any of the other governors, satraps, or any of those guys. So he wanted Daniel to stay there. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king had commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went back to the palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? When you think of a lion's den, I've seen pictures where the, it's open, and they kick them in, they close the That's not it. There's no way because the lion's going to charge at you, and it's going to get you. What I'm thinking of the den is, is it's down. It's down, and that way they can't get out of it, and they just shut the stone over the top of it. We'll see why there's evidence for that as we keep reading. <clears throat> then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they, have no, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of, taken up out of, taken up out of the lion's den. There, oh, sorry taken up out of the den and no harm of, or no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. And the king commanded, those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. So it wasn't just the guys that had tried to trap Daniel. He also threw their wives and their children down into this pit where the lions were. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones. Now, I want you guys to, I'm going to emphasize 25 through 27, and we'll be done. Listen to this part, because I'm going to make a statement about it when I get done, about this last part of 25 through 27. Listen carefully. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So King Darius is telling everyone this right here, this very thing. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree 
that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So the same God of Daniel served thousands of years ago is still the same God who we serve today. The same God who shut the mouths of lions in Daniel's lives can shut the mouths of the lions in your life. We serve a great and powerful God. Make him your number one priority. There's something that I, when I was going through this study, something hit me and I thought it was spot on. And I wanna, really, I wanna share this with you. Everybody thinks that God will put stuff in your way as a test or something of that nature. When it came to Daniel, when it came to Daniel, God didn't use the lion's den to get Daniel's attention. God didn't use that to get Daniel's attention. God used the lion's den to get everyone else's attention. That's why he used it. That's why I want you to think of verses 25 through 27. Because he said, let all the earth know about Daniel's God. He used the lion's den. Daniel wasn't scared of it. Daniel was good. Daniel was faithful. Let it happen. So it wasn't something that Daniel was to go through to show Daniel something. It was something for everyone else to see. And he walked away without a scratch. So let's not be distracted by lust, money, or power like the later stages of King Solomon's life. Let's not be distracted by personal ambitions and wants like the early remnant of the Jewish community written in the book of Haggai. Instead, let's be someone who God can use, someone like Daniel, who God used to get the attention of others. Let's make God and his will our number one priority. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward. If you haven't placed God as your number one priority because you haven't placed faith, your faith and trust in him, today's the day. There's no better day to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ than today. Make him your number one priority today. If you're not saved and you know you're not saved, there's no better way to start off 2024. And all that aside, all the, all the, all the New Year stuff aside, all the Christmas that was behind us, all the New Year's Day stuff that's coming up and staying up tonight and celebrating, in all honesty, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to get that taken care of. It doesn't matter if it's New Year's Eve or if it's March 23rd. It doesn't matter. Take care of it today. Make him your number one priority and he will reshape your entire life. If you're a Christian who has shuffled God and his will to the bottom, then pray to him this morning by making a commitment to putting him back in his rightful place in your life. He deserves to be number one in your life. If you're a proclaimed Christian and he has taken a back seat for not just the last few days or weeks or years, it's time to recommit your life to him. It's time to recommit him to the number one place in your life. He deserves it. There is no one on this earth who can save you. There's nothing you can do on this earth to save you. So why would you pour all your time and effort and love and money into something that has a hole in the bottom of it? Pour it all out to him. If you belong to him, make him your number one priority. If you wanna be baptized or you wanna become an official member of First Baptist Church of Queen, you can come up here and I'd love to speak with you. I feel like there's a lot of things that need to be decided upon this morning, whether it be salvation or recommitting your life to God.
by putting him number one on your priority list. 